Welcome to the Be Ruthless Show, where we have the conversations that other people don't, the conversations that other people won't. I'm your host, Sam Ruth, and I'm ready to make a lot of noise and disrupt things ruthlessly. Thanks for being here today. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to the Be Ruthless Show. Joining me today, I have Dr. Jay Jashi, a physician, entrepreneur, and author who was wrongfully convicted and targeted by the DEA in 2018. He has since regained his medical license and become a national leader in the opioid epidemic, and he has written a book that recently launched called Burden of Pain. You reported an employee who was forging scripts under your credentials to the local police, police, and you found yourself at the center of an investigation led by the DEA. And over the following months, evidence was tampered with, statements were perjured, all of which resulted in a coerced plea and a sentence of 11 months imprisonment. And you fought to regain that license and reestablish your practice while writing legal briefs for many federal opioid cases, including the Supreme Court's case, Ruan versus the United States. Thank you so much for being here. This is an extremely important topic. So glad you're safe and sorry for everything you've been through. No, appreciate it. I think that everything happens for a reason. And what happened to me culminated in me being in a position to advocate for patients. So thank you for having me and thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak. This is happening. People are coerced into confessions. You were trying to do the right thing. Tell everyone about what you've been through, why you are speaking out so openly and why you wrote this book and where where you are at in this journey. Certainly. I appreciate that. Uh, Let me start from the beginning because I think that probably makes the most sense. In 2017, I opened the first primary care practice in Northwest Indiana that implemented harm reduction into the primary care practice. I had a lot of patients who had situations with alcoholism that were union laborers that laid off from their union and are now independent contractors were taking pain medications and balancing the line between dealing with their pain and providing for their families. These are very complex behavioral health issues that are more or less outside of what you would see in the traditional primary care setting. So I started seeing these patients and complementing the visits with telepsychiatry. And we were featured in NPR as the first practice in Northwest Indiana to implement telepsychiatry to complement the primary care setting. And I still haven't fully understood yet, and this is part of the investigation into DEA misconduct, something triggered the investigation into my practice. And I think the fact that patients were coming to get behavioral help and primary care help in my practice in the mind of the DEA, not being clinically oriented, assumed that I was doing something improper. So they began looking at my practice. And incidentally, they had an undercover DEA agent come. And this DEA agent claimed to be a truck driver from Florida who had moved to Indiana, did not have his medical license or not have his medical insurance just yet, and was looking to establish continuity of care in my practice. So he claimed to say I had leg pain, and I was taking Vicodin 10, 500, three times a day, which is a moderate dose. Uh, I told him I wasn't comfortable starting him at that dose until we worked him up with other medical options and provide some imaging studies. So we reviewed his prescription database and 
because he was an undercover agent, uh, everything checked out. Uh, we asked for him to do a urine drug screen. He asked to wait until after his insurance, which is something that I would do because for patients who didn't have insurance, a urine drug screen can cost like two, three, four hundred dollars. So that's a big financial burden to put on somebody without medical insurance. Um, and so I lowered his opioids down to Norco 7.5325 twice a day, which is, as per CDC guidelines, an appropriate dose for patients with chronic pain that are non-opioid naive. And so I started seeing the patient, I, or undercover agent. I still think he's a patient because I still think like a physician. Um, so I saw him for about four visits. And during those four visits, we ordered imaging studies. We requested his medical records, and I lowered his opioid amount from 60 to about 50 in what's considered a slow, gradual taper with his consent. I haven't heard much uh, from him, and then he just stopped coming to my practice. Now, at the same time, there was a former employee who was forging scripts under my name. Now, this all happened in the second half of 2017. I reported her to the police. I filed a police report, they came to my clinic, we signed off on everything, and that was the last that I had heard. So my thinking, and again, this is still as part of the ongoing investigation that went to the Office of Inspector General, it is now into the hands of the Office of Professional Responsibility. Because there was that undercover agent and because there was that employee situation, both happening at the same time, in the minds of the DEA, they thought, well, that's all I need. So then they raided my practice in November of 2017. And um, this was incidentally um, just a few weeks after the whole NPR interview and everything came out. So you got to imagine on one end, I'm having tremendous success helping so many vulnerable patients, getting featured in outlets and getting awards. We won an award from the NCQA for a patient-centered medical home for the quality care we provided. So on the clinical front, you're seeing so much success. And then the DEA is coming in and perceiving these successes through the light of something that is completely not, as though it's running a criminal enterprise. And what happened, and now that I understand this a little bit better, is the DEA doesn't look at the clinical need or underlying medical conditions. They simply look at the patient care as a drug transaction because that's how they're trained. And law enforcement agents are gonna look at something in a way that they are trained. So they look at the exchange of drugs in the same way that you and I would look at the care for a patient. And that's where all of this culminated because they said the undercover agent, despite claiming he had leg pain, despite reviewing his, his uh, prescription records, despite asking for his medical records, asking him to perform a urine drug screen, which admittedly I said, it's okay until you don't get, until you get your insurance. They claimed that I was behaving in a reckless and criminal manner. And so in 2018, I was indicted for prescribing Norco 7.5325 twice a day to an undercover agent. And what they claimed, and they kind of use this templated language outside of the scope of clinical medicine. And uh, the factual basis that they eventually landed on was that the quality of my physical exam was not comprehensive enough to justify the continuation of prescription opioids. So uh, typically what will happen is <clears throat> the DEA will come in and they'll say, did you perform a physical exam? Yes or no. If they say, if you did not perform a physical exam, they'll say, well, you just were giving prescriptions without performing the requisite oversight. Another thing they'll say is, did you document properly? Well, if you didn't document then, in their words, and this is actually what a DEA agent told me 
was that if it's not documented, it doesn't count and we'll use it against you. And uh, so there's a complete mindset shift in how the DEA looks at all of these things. And eventually what happened is, flash forward, that a former employee who was forging scripts ended up serving as a witness for the grand jury to that led to the indictment. The undercover DEA agent and the prescriptions that I trusting him as a patient prescribed to him with all the clinical oversights served as a factual basis for the indictment. Now, the question then becomes, well, why didn't you fight to holy hell to make sure that everything works out in your favor? Well, this was before 2022, the year in which the Supreme Court finally reviewed a case similar to mine and said, if the physician does not exhibit criminal intent, you cannot charge the patient with a crime. And that was, as you had mentioned, the case Ruan v. United States. So prior to 2022, again, this was in 2018, I couldn't claim that I was exercising my clinical judgment. I couldn't claim that I trusted the patient. And while I knew that there was a risk, I felt I offset the risk by lowering the dose of the opioids and ordering a test, reviewing the prescription history, what else could I have done as a physician to provide the oversight besides simply saying, I am choosing not to trust you. I am choosing not to look at you like a patient and I can't see you as a physician. It's very bizarre to see how the DEA is looking at the clinical encounter. But I feel that my case highlights this fundamental incongruency between how the law looks at the clinical encounter and how clinically trained physicians and patients would look at the clinical encounter. And that's really the long and short of why everything happened the way it did. Let's talk about the coerced confession. Mm -hmm. Because I have been involved with clients dealing with so many situations. We, when you're innocent, when you've done nothing wrong, you tend to believe the police. They say, you know, give us your story, we'll help you. <laughs> and people yeah. listen and then are taken down a completely different road and end up in the legal system with records that are with them forever. So you're in a situation where you are a doctor, you've prescribed, you have a record, you have a trail. You are believing a patient who has a proven history as a DEA agent, like you said, they created a medical record so you can see on a screen a history of prescriptions. So you listened and you followed. What are, what are they telling you in a room that gets you to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what you're asking. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. And not only that, when the patient first came, that undercover agent, we had him fill out patient registration documents. And one of the questions we asked in that document was, are you addicted or abusing medications? Or do you have a history of that? To which the undercover agent signed the document after checking the response to that question as no. So... At a certain point, it kind of strains credulity how much you're supposed to distrust a patient and still act as a normal physician. I, I, more to your point about the concept of working with law enforcement and understanding how they could coerce a plea and effectively get you to do something that's not in your best interest, even though you are a law-abiding citizen who trusts law enforcement. I, I think that there's two things here. One as painful as this may sound to many who have been victimized by law enforcement, we have to lean in and work with law enforcement and find ways to 
identify common grounds. It's not easy. I've been turned down many times, but imagine I'm going up to the attorney general's office. I'm going up to law enforcement agents and asking them to have conversations about what happened in my case, asking them to implement principles of harm reduction. After a certain point, it starts to click in law enforcement's mind that, hey, you know, maybe we aren't looking at this the right way. And I think that now you're starting to see, particularly with the DEA and more at the state level, less so much at the local level, law enforcement starting to understand that harm reduction, that treating the patient matters more than simply looking at the clinical encounter like a drug transaction and, and comparing it to some sort of illicit drug trade. And so I think hopefully you'll start seeing uh, as many coerced plea agreements for physicians in situations like me, mine. But I think what has happened is the law enforcement simply thought that they were doing what was quote unquote necessary to stop the rising opioid overdoses. And that by going after any physician, hook or crook, red flag or not, crime or not, it'll send a message that, hey, we need to stop prescribing opioids. And when you have a misguided notion, you're gonna act in misguided ways. And I think now we're starting to see a trend in the other direction where finally law enforcement is acknowledging that we need to take more clinically sensible approaches to treating patients. We have a major opioid crisis. There's fear everywhere. I understand, you know, let's cut it off at the highest level and maybe we can make a difference. But we have to work as teams. I go into police stations all the time saying, let's work together. There has to be a mental health representative on certain calls because officers are bringing guns and tasers when there is a mental health crisis and they don't see it. Let's work together. When are we looking at the patient? When are we listening yeah. to the patient saying, I'm in pain, I'm scared. And when and how do we're never going to get rid of all the drugs, no matter how many people we put behind bars. What's funny is like, do we even want to look at it in that way, right? So we don't call alcohol a drug. We don't call caffeine a drug. We call those substances that people can consume at their own discretion. And I think harm reduction principles, providing safe injection sites, offering medications with the controlled oversight has proven not only in this country, not only in select cities, but around the world to be a better approach to patient care and by extension, safety to society. Let's, let's look at it in two ways. And I think there's a very important point talking about mental health and law enforcement because I distribute naloxone, Narcan as it's commercially called, to law enforcement agents. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, eye-winking like, oh, we support harm reduction, but then the naloxone that I provide for them kind of just sits in the cabinet over there and nobody ever touches it. And when I'm distributing it, they say, oh, please give me all the naloxone you have. And then when it actually comes down to using it or keeping it with you, uh, they don't take it. So th th there's a double speak here. And I think looking at my case as a microcosm and broad policy as a macrocosm highlights that divide. So let's go back to that employee who was forging scripts under my name. It was a relatively straightforward incident. I caught her and I reported her, right? If you find somebody robbing your store, you identify the crime and you report the crime, and then the perpetrator is apprehended. It's a very logical sequence of events. What happened in my case, and I think this is very fascinating, they looked at her 
as if she was on the bottom rung of a drug ring where I was at the top. So all of a sudden now in the eyes of law enforcement, they say, well, we have this person who committed a crime. Let's use her to go after him. And they equated my clinical practice as if it was a traditional drug ring where they used lower ranking members to then find and identify who the high ranking members were. And that's clearly a disconnect in how law enforcement looks at it and how clinical providers are perceived by their patients. Now let's expand that at a macro level. We have this obsession and this is Nixonian obsession with supplies and drugs. We have to create a war on drugs and limit the supply as much as possible. Well, what happens is that when you limit the supply of one drug or you artificially reduce it, you simply create patterns of substitution. And what we're learning now, regardless of whether you're a well-intentioned patient with a nascent dependency, where you are a union worker laid off, you still have that shoulder ailment, you can't afford surgery, you can't afford time off work, but you got to work. So you take a few pain medications to support your family. Now, is that patient a drug addict? Is that patient slightly developing a dependency that's a known side effect to opioids? How you choose to perceive that patient depends on how you are ingrained to think about opioids to begin with. Would you call a patient who is overweight and has a poor diet, eats a lot of sugary confectionery items late at night, somebody who's a non-compliant diabetic and say, well, you don't deserve those diabetes medication. You're, you're not eating properly but we stigmatize certain conditions over others. And what happens then by creating this supply-oriented mindset, that patient who may or may not have been developing some sort of dependency, but is a well-functioning patient contributing to society and doing what he has to do in a resource-constrained healthcare system to provide for his family despite having that shoulder ailment, doesn't that patient deserve to take care of his family? Doesn't that patient deserve to have the right to provide despite having a medical condition of chronic pain. And so when we say, well, no, we got to focus on supplies, you're not focusing on that patient and the complexity in his or her life. What you're focusing on is the medication that that patient is taking and judging everything about that patient around that medication. We do that for all sorts of medications. We do that for now with the psychedelic medications that are now showing to have benefit for patients with depression. We're doing that with benzodiazepines. We're doing that with ADH medications. We just selectively choose to stigmatize and then subsequently moralize certain medical conditions, certain substances, and then equate all the behavior associated with that one substance as criminal in nature. And what does it led to us? It's led to rising overdoses because patients are not going to stop using medication simply because it's cut off. They're going to make their behavior more risky. And that's what we see with these rising synthetic fentanyls, with uh, nalbuzine and what have you, carfentanil and all of that. These are more potent synthetic derivatives as more opioids are becoming harder to find. They're looking for more potent illicit forms. And that's just a consequence of looking at the America's relationship with drugs through a supply side focus only. It's a great point. And I know that a lot of my listeners, I have, I have a lot of clients who are dealing with grief. I have people who have dealt with overdose uh, and accidental overdose. And I am not trying to trigger anyone with this conversation, but we do. We have people who have thought they were taking one drug and ended up with another. 
I myself have back issues and I am extremely sensitive to medication. And my doctor only wanted to give me Vicodin and I will not take it. I wanted something less strong and they only wanted to give me Vicodin. And I, this is, it's not funny, but I, I had to laugh. I couldn't get the sentence out. I said, if you will not give me tramadol, I'm going to have to call my vet and get like, they will write it for my dog. <laughs> it's it, it. This is the world we live in where things are that regulated and people will go out on the street and get something else. And we don't know what they're getting. And kids go in their parents' medication and this is the world we live in. So we are not controlling anything. We are escalating the dangers that people will take something else. And yeah. we do not know what that is. And we don't know where it's made and what's put in it and what will happen. And like you said, with why are police not, why will they not take, if anybody doesn't know what Narcan is, it's the injectable, uh, if, if you watch inhaling, it, it's in the nose now. Yeah. It's an inhaler solution. So they can just for, inhale it. Yeah. For an, if there is an overdose, that is the safest thing. There are teenagers who are afraid to call the police when somebody is having alcohol poisoning or drug overdose, they're afraid of the arrest that, yeah. that I, that I hear all the time. I will have people call me and say, what do we do? And I yeah. say, call 911. I'm, I'm not hearing stories of the police not using it. There is a pervasive misunderstanding in law enforcement about opioid overdoses. And what I've seen as a distributor for naloxone is that law enforcement agents are very leery to use it or to implement it because they have misperceptions about concepts like fentanyl, overdose by proxy, and other opioid-related hysteria that's not grounded in clinical facts. I'll give you one example. There's a pervasive thought among law enforcement that if I touch a patient who is overdosing on fentanyl, I could potentially overdose as well. So these misconceptions prevent law enforcement agents from actually wanting to use the naloxone. So if I provide the naloxone for them and they have it readily available and they respond to a 911 call where a patient is overdosing, they then would have to use the naloxone. So having that pervasive fear prevents them from taking the clinically correct action. And so then they'll simply not use the naloxone, but they won't say, I don't want naloxone. I don't believe in harm reduction, but what you'll find in medicine, particularly when it comes to the opioids is that what people say and what they truly think are often disconnected. And I think that's why we don't have honest conversations around this because people don't want to put themselves out there. I hope in my book, burden of pain, I just, throw it all out there, the good, the bad, what you think of me in terms of my clinical decision-making, what you think of me in terms of wanting to help vulnerable patients, wanting to implement harm reduction. You can very well say, I don't think that is the right clinical decision, but you can't say I'm committing a crime. The moment you get into that realm, the conversation changes and it's no longer meaningful. I welcome debates on what you think was the correct course of clinical action. I think that it's healthy to have those conversations. But the moment you take it to the absolute extreme and start creating hysteria around clinical medicine being acts of crime, you, you lose people. And then the conversation no longer becomes productive. And I'm glad that you brought up psychedelics. Uh, that's a hot topic these days. And I, I've seen it all. I'm seeing it all. And there is a misunderstanding in this world. There is 
the hippie culture out there, and I'm I'm a proud hippie, <laughs> but there's the hippie culture out there that thinks they can use it on their own and medicate. And to all of my listeners, I'd like to say it needs to be under doctor supervision. And I have seen doctors utilizing this medication inappropriately, and I've seen it well used. I have a client who was near hospitalization who's doing fantastic under doctor supervision. And like I said, I've seen doctors still learning and not understanding the right dosages. So anyone out there who thinks they can go do it on their own, that is not how it's done. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to be done in the correct, like monitored and with, with therapy as well. A, a couple of things. So I agree that there needs to be a therapy component to any medication use because taking a medication is only a part of the equation. Learning how to live with that medication is a much more important aspect of that equation. I think what you see, and I'm glad you mentioned about the problem being two-sided, uh, two right? Some physicians may not have the best understanding, and some patients may not have the greatest trust in the healthcare system. So it's all a process of learning. I think the first step to all of this is to destigmatize use of medications. And you had mentioned where people are afraid to call 911 and what have you. But there are laws that protect people who call 911 in the event of an overdose. Why are they not implemented? Well, because often when those people call 911, where let's say two or three individuals are using a particular substance and one overdoses, if there is any paraphernalia that's drug related, the police will then charge for that paraphernalia. And it is a bizarre situation in which the patients who call 911 are protected from having used the substance, but they are not protected against any associated paraphernalia with that substance. And I think it's one of those things where the intent of the law was sidestepped by those who have ill intent in the implementation of it. And you see that everywhere. And now let's talk about the example with physicians and patients, excluding law enforcement. Are there physicians who will say, hey, well, this psychedelic stuff seems like it's a growing opportunity. Let me just start prescribing it to everybody left and right. Yeah, there will be physicians who are looking at this from a commercialization standpoint more so than what is right clinically. That's there without a doubt. Are there patients who will say, well, I'm better off just finding something on my own. I don't trust the healthcare system. Let me go do willy nilly and whatever I ingest is whatever I ingest for sure. I think when we destigmatize things, when we align the intent with the implementation, get rid of the moral hazards and the, oh, I got you. There you go. You're wrong. I'm right. When we start to eliminate that mindset and say, look, we're all learning in this process of addiction, substance use dependency, and what it all means, um, we're going to have more trust. And when we have more trust, we're going to have better clinical outcomes. And I'll, I'll, let me give you an example of this. And I want to get too off topic here, but I recently wrote an op-ed for MedPage today. And um, in there, I talk about how the DEA needs to work on developing a model of harm reduction. Because in there, I say, until the DEA is on board with the clinical societies that talk about harm reduction, you're going to have a health policy interpretation that's vastly different from how it's implemented. The two have to align interpretation of the policy and implementation of it. And when I posted that, I got a lot of comments from patients that say, oh, that was a great article, but you remember point X, Y, and Z says this, and you should have been more 
clear when you use the word disorder versus dependency. And I'm looking at the comments and I'm reviewing my article. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's actually some pretty good advice. As a chronic pain patient, you're providing some really good feedback on what I wrote. And when we have that mindset that patients with lived experiences provide value, con valuable contribution to medical care, then we start to eliminate the you are just a patient and I'm a great physician. You listen to me. That paternalistic attitude we saw in the pandemic, it doesn't work. And we need to move away from it and focus more on having a collaborative conversation. I love that. And, and I love including mental health, law enforcement, all medical doctors. If we don't work as a team, we're never going to get there. Yeah. What else would you like people to know about your story, how you're doing now? 11 you know, is not a walk in the park. No, it's not a walk in the park. Um, I, I will say that um, I was treated fairly, that uh, I, I I was beat up twice, um, but it wasn't like uh, what you see on the television shows or whatnot. It was more kind of like a high school bullying, um, both by other Asians, um, because I uh, didn't really get along with what they wanted to do. In prison, everybody's trying to create a certain identity for themselves. It's almost this kind of compensation mechanism where you've effectively lost everything. And so you want to rebuild your identity and then get involved in certain activities. And I just chose not to. I didn't, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I didn't gamble. I didn't play cards. I didn't really do anything. Um, and so... I, I really just read books, wrote stories. I mean, I wrote Burden of Pain by hand while I was away. So, um, you know, it gave me a great opportunity to just reflect. And I had two choices. I was either drown in despair or find a way to elevate myself from the circumstances that I was in. So I chose to use reading and writing as that outlet. Um, I, I will say, though, that at the facility I was, the um, correctional officers were fair. Uh, most of the inmates were kind. Um, if you just keep your head down and stay to yourself, they'll respect your space, you'll respect their space. Um, I think the biggest thing was just being very lonely and that uh, you're by yourself. Um, and so you naturally feel a tendency to want to interact and engage with other individuals. Um, I felt that way with other Asians um, when I first got there. And I think um, in hindsight, it would have been best if I just stayed to myself, not saying anything negative about those individuals, but they were going through their own journey. Uh, they were choosing to react in certain ways. And, you know, when you are in prison for only 11 months and somebody else is in there for 11 years, they have a different mindset. And so they kind of vent some of that frustration on you. And I think that I should have been a little bit more cautious and just keeping to myself and just focusing on what I need to do. Because the times when I was just reading and writing by myself, just alone with my thoughts, uh, that was when I was at most peace when I was over there. Some people would be very bitter, have a negative attitude towards the police and law and authority, and you do not. And that's extremely admirable. Um, I love it. It wasn't easy to get there. It wasn't easy to get there. Uh, it, it was very difficult. Um, I, 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 and I apologize for cutting you off, but I want to be very uh, transparent. Um, it, it was not easy at all. And I engage in a lot of self-destructive behavior. Um, when all of this first happened, when I was first indicted and all these things, um, you know, I would drink like six, seven beers a day, uh, you know, just uh, drowning myself in my sorrow. Um, and, uh, you know, I really had to 
look at myself and overcome a lot of things. And it was one of the situations where how I present now and what I think now is a manifestation of years of just trying to build a sense of positivity and just identifying that no matter what you're going through, you have to just remain positive and keep that steady mindset. Um, it was not easy to get to this place. It was very difficult. I engaged in a lot of self-destructive behavior that I had to overcome, but I, I feel like I'm in a good place where I can speak authentically with honesty and get my message across. What would you say to other people who have been in the system and are not at this peaceful place yet, who are still a little bit bitter and maybe self-sabotaging? Yeah, no, I'm, I, I hear you loud and clear. Um, what I would say to you is that your credibility comes from how you interact. The direct one-on-one -on -one interaction is how you will build credibility. You can't expect people to understand what you're going through, and people will take pot shots at you. When How people treat you is none of your business. The only thing that matters is how you choose to think of yourself. And a lot of people sent me text messages like, I always knew something was wrong with you. I always knew you were up to something. Ha, 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 look at you now, so on and so forth. You, you, you're going to get these things. But until you realize that how people interact with you is more a reflection of how they think of themselves, you're not going to be in a place that you need to be. And please, please don't engage in self-destructive behavior because the moment you react to the provocations, you're simply justifying the way people are treating you if that's in a negative way. But if you can learn not to react and try to find some common ground, your message will be very powerful. And it's one of those things where um, it doesn't feel like you're being powerful. It feels like you're just being weak and letting people step on you. But I, but I promise you, it's um, integrity and credibility are the most powerful weapons you can have. And do not sacrifice those at any cost. And finding the right people. I was just in a meeting before this call yeah. with a woman who had been in a room with the wrong people. And they had kind of been bullying and giving her some BS. Uh, and we didn't know this. Um, but she was kind of sharing something else with a group of positive women and we were cheering her on and she got emotional and ended up telling us about this other group of women. And we were just talking about how we all have to search and find the right people. <clears throat> and I am not sitting here in a suit looking all, you know, we all, I have been around people who have given me BS for, you know, not being ultra professional and we all go through our stuff. And when you find the right people, it's worth it and they cheer you on and all that other stuff goes away and you realize that that you you find it's worth it and you find the ones who get it and that other stuff doesn't matter anymore there will always be haters and people who say you know i knew you had <laughs> i knew there was something up with you um yeah. people need to judge and criticize for whatever reason and it really is a reflection of them um, and, and it doesn't feel good. And I get that, but I agree. I encourage you to keep looking for your people, uh, because it will be such a different energy and reward. Agreed. Um, any last words, anything we didn't cover that you want people listening to know? Uh, 
you can reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help. Uh, pretty much um, on a daily basis, I get five, six messages from chronic pain patients, from patients with substance use dependency, uh, inquiring about how they can talk to their physicians, about how they can get the care that they need. Uh, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help. I uh, just, I, I do it free of charge. Um, it's not know, a formal patient-physician encounter, but if I can direct you to some resources that may be of help when you do talk to your primary care physician, more than happy to share those documents. I'm now working with a lot of grassroots patient advocacy organizations, so my name will start to come up when we are looking at legislation on protecting patients with chronic pain and protecting providers who treat those patients. And so please reach out to me. I, I want to be a resource. I want to help people, and I want to change the conversation so that Anybody who's dealing with a stigmatized medical condition knows that that stigma is not right. You don't deserve to be treated that way. And there are people who understand what you're going through and we will work together to help you. How do they find you and how do they find Burden of Pain? So Burden of Pain, uh, this is the uh, book right here. You know, I got to you know, do the little plug. Um, that uh, is available pretty much on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com, Ingram Sparks. Uh, if you just uh, Google Burden of Pain, B-U-R-D-E-N of O-F, Pain, P-A-I-N, um, you can find the book. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, shoot me an email. I can give you uh, my email. I can actually text it here. It's uh, jjosh45 at gmail.com. Um, I will respond to it. I'll, I find a lot of people reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I respond. Um, I blog on the site called Daily Remedy. So uh, if you want to just go and take a look at some of the things that I blog, you can just reach out to me on that site. Um, I'm pretty accessible, you know. I mean, in 2018, my whole life was just thrown onto, um, you know, a propaganda uh, wheel circle. And uh, since then, I just kind of realized that I just live with a certain level of transparency and uh, people will gravitate towards that. So I make myself available and people want to reach out, more than happy to help. I'll put all of that in the comments. If you're driving, don't pull over. I'll put that in the yeah. note as well. That's that's the same way I operate. I say to people, yeah. you don't have to work with me, but if you need help finding a resource, please reach out. Don't suffer and struggle alone. You know, we have more resources than you do. And if we can help you find them, that's the same way I operate. So if you are struggling with a condition or your doctor isn't listening to you, that is a difficult avenue to handle alone. If you need help with that conversation and figuring out how to advocate for yourself in a doctor's office or for a condition that is overwhelming, please reach out to either one of us. Thank you so much for your time, your openness, for sharing your story. Everyone listening, thank you for being a part of this community. Until next time, everyone, always be ruthless. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Your support means everything to me, truly. If this podcast resonates with you, please do me a favor and join in the Ruthless Movement by making some noise and doing one of these four things. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell a friend so we can break stigmas even faster. Leave a review so people can see what you think of the show. And last, if you want to learn more about me and be a part of the Grief Hub community, please head on over to the Facebook group. We'd love to have you. Thanks again for spending your time with us and see you next week.